Due to the subject matter, we advise that children under the age of 12 or those of a sensitive nature should turn off now. Tales podcast where we look into the minds and crimes of murderers and serial killers. My name's Chris Britton, and each week I am joined by the author and creator of the Murder Tales and criminal historian H.N. Lloyd, or as we know him, Lloydy. Hello. Right, cliffhanger after cliffhanger. We've been so tantalizingly close to finding Leslie Whittle. So in this episode, we are still following the notorious serial killer, the Black Panther, or better known as Donald Nielsen. When we left you in the last episode, the police were honing into Nielsen after the botched attempt to arrest him following the, the kidnapping of Leslie Whittle. So, Lloydie, where do we go from here? Well, the police have now discovered the car that Nielsen had been using, and they released the details of that car to the public. And a bunch of people started to come forward all saying the same thing that in the in the run-up to leslie's murder they had seen the car loitering on the outskirts of, of in different birmingham suburbs now they wouldn't do this immediately but eventually the police would surmise that nilson had been in these areas because he'd been going to to reddit central library because the architect's plans for the Todd biggie reservoir were held at that library that's a very specific thing to be looking at in the local reference library. It is, but Nielsen had a very good reason for doing so, because the drainage tunnels for that particular reservoir went under Bathpool Park, and that is where he'd hidden Leslie Whipple. So is this a way of him finding a way back to Leslie without being spotted in the park? You know, he'd been doing this before the kidnapping. It was all part of his... Ah, uh, okay, sorry. So this is why he specifically. So this is why he specifically chose that park. Yes. So he had visited tunnels personally, and he'd also viewed the architectural plans. So he knew these tunnels intimately. Hence the reason why he was able to get Leslie down there safely and find the gantry that he had tied her to. This is quite a promising lead, then. It is. However, the key discovery came when some schoolboys found a torch in Bath pool park and with that torch was a dynamo taped message now the boys didn't immediately take this to the police but when one of the teachers saw them playing with it they realized that there was something significant and specifically with the message so the police were informed and the police carried out another search of Bathpool park and it led them to using sniffer dogs now the sniffer dogs led them to one of the manhole covers that donald nielsen had used so ds Mascari who was one of the search and, and rescue officers, he went down into those tunnels. He described it as the most inhospitable place, cold, damp, full of unusual noises. 
it was full of rats and vermin. He began to descend further and further into the massive tunnels. He discovered piles of supplies that Nilsson had left. He discovered a ladder that he'd been using. And eventually he discovered the gantry that Leslie had been tied to. You said had been. Yes. Leslie, at some point, had fallen from the gantry. She was hanging from the gantry by her neck, still attached by that metal collar that Nilsson had placed around her neck. She was dead and had been for nine days. We say that she fell, but was there any likelihood that he might have gone down there? Well, yes. Everyone now agrees that Nilsson, in a fit of rage, went down there and pushed her off. Now, Nielsen denied this and said that she, she must have rolled over in her sleep and, and fell. No one believes that, and, and, and he was convicted of Leslie's murder. The fact that he kidnapped her, which resulted in her death, would warrant it being murder. Yeah, exactly. She would not have been in that place if it wasn't for him kidnapping her. So even if she had slipped and fell, he would still be responsible for her death. But I have, I have no doubt that he went there and he pushed or kicked her off. See, all the way through this, there seems to there's an excuse why people have died. And from the start. Now, as I said, it sound, I question the fact that he made out that it was kind of self-defense. However, he took the gun to the earlier robberies. He decided to shoot somebody who approached him after a rage. The narrative does not fit the actions of the crime as being accidental. It's too coincidental. Four people have been killed due to this guy. Now, with Leslie, his excuse is she must have fell when she was asleep. But then he didn't mean to shoot the postmaster. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Nilsson always had an excuse as to why people had died by his hands, you know, usually by accident. He was never to blame for, for what he did. And it, he was a man who used excuse after excuse after excuse throughout his life. You know, his army career failed because, you know, his wife hadn't wanted to be in the army. His taxi company had collapsed you know and it wasn't his fault the ice cream company tried to run and collapsed and it wasn't his fault he, he was a man who basically couldn't take responsibility for his own failings and he couldn't ultimately take responsibility for his own crimes yeah that lack of responsibility and blaming others for for their failing does categorize them as a narcissist Yes, I'd say very much so that he was. So the police have discovered Leslie's body, but they still haven't made an arrest. No, and I think that this is a perfect opportunity to go to a break. When have you started using breaks as a cliffhanger? I don't get very many jobs on this podcast, and now you're starting to take over that as well. Okay, we'll go to a break, so make sure you listen to these words from our sponsors, and we'll be back in a couple of minutes. And welcome back. We're on the hunt for the Black Panther. Unfortunately, the police have discovered the body of Leslie Whittle, but they've still not made an arrest. So what's the timeline from here? Well, it was a long time before they got Donald Nielsen. The police had lots of leads that they tried to follow up. They interviewed 200,000 people and they gave formal statements. They had 30,000 telephone tips and they generated 2.5 million index cards. So that's the sheer amount of information the police then had to try and work through. And it led 
eventually to October 1975, the police basically said, enough is enough. We can't actively investigate any new leads. So they physically stopped the police from investigating the crime and basically said, let's just start going through what we've already been given. I suppose this category approach, we've seen it in the past on other stories and how long and expensive that process is. At the time, was that the necessary way that they would investigate a crime? And has that changed in modern times? Well, you'd never had a crime like this before, really. I mean, this was pre-Yorkshire Ripper, which again suffered from from exactly the the same problem. Uh, It was a time before modern computers uh, made these types of investigations so much easier. And also, and by a happy accident, Donald Nelson had created a jurisdictional nightmare of the case because there was so many separate different police forces that had become involved and not all of those police forces would happily talk to one another so it's led to this situation where for effectively for three months the police stopped investigating any new information that came forward went back and started looking at everything that they already had and he also made the decision to pull out every suspect that they've ever had triple check their alibis and he was convinced that the man must be in the system that they had so much information from the public that the right name must already be in that system and it wasn't so what's the break in the case well the break on the case came on thursday the 11th of december 1975 and it was thanks to two probationary police officers they were 25 year old probationary constable tony white and 28 year old probationary constable Stuart mckenzie now they were on police patrol in mansfield in nottinghamshire it was just after 11 p.m on old mill lane and they saw somebody loitering. They'd pulled over to do some paperwork on an on arrest they'd made a previous evening. And one of the police officers said, this fellow here, he looks a bit dodgy. Shall, shall we have a word with him? So they pulled the car up next to him and they said to him, evening, what, what are you up to? And the man said that he his name was John Moxon and that he was and that he was walking home from the pub. Now, the police weren't happy about this. And when one of the police officers pulled a notepad from his pocket to make a detailed note of what was being said, the man pulled a sawn off shotgun from his bag. And he ordered PC White to get into the back of the car. And then he got into the front alongside PC McKenzie. And he ordered PC McKenzie to drive him out of the area. And he said, any tricks and you're dead. So they started to drive along. And eventually, after driving for some time, they they hit an area called Rainworth. Now, at this point, PC McKenzie slammed on the brakes. PC White grabbed the shotgun and the shotgun went off. As PC McKenzie hit the brakes, they mounted the pavement outside of a chip shop. Now, there were several people in the chip shop getting some supper and the sound of the shotgun going off got their attention. Two men came out of the chip shop. They were called Keith Morrison and Keith Wood. They immediately could see somebody fighting with the two policemen in the car. And being good-minded, good citizens, they went to the police car They opened the door and they grabbed the man out. When he started to try and fight them, Mr. Wood turned out was a trained judo champion. And he basically judo chopped the man to the neck, knocking him out cold, at which point he was then handcuffed to a set of railings. Now, obviously, as soon as a man with a shotgun and a balaclava in his bag, the Black Panther team were immediately informed. They asked that the shotgun be fingerprinted because they'd already got the kidnapper's fingerprints from the car that they'd found. And lo and behold, if the fingerprints on the shotgun and the fingerprints from the kidnapper's car weren't a 100% match, 
the police finally had the Black Panther in custody and it was all down to a happy accident. How often does this happen with serial killers? Though? It happens a heck of a lot more than you'd think. Obviously, his, his almost namesake, Dennis Nilsson, caught by a happy accident of his blocking his drains. Peter Sutcliffe, again, arrested by a probationary police officer who, who took him in for curb crawling. Yeah, it, it, it is it is a, a thing where a lot of these killers are simply caught by accident. Uh, is that because of the uptake in police presence, or is that purely down to them having an overinflated belief that they're not going to get caught. No, Nielsen wasn't even on the police's radar, but the police didn't even know they had a serial killer in operation. Peter Sutcliffe had been very, very careful. He hadn't killed for quite a while and he'd gone to an entirely different city that he hadn't gone to before, to the point where when he was arrested, the Yorkshire Ripper team didn't believe they'd arrested the, the Yorkshire Ripper and were quite reluctant to actually go and interview Peter Sutcliffe at first. The the only one really I can think of who, who was really caught by his own arrogance would be John Wayne Gacy, because he knew he was under police surveillance and was suspected of crimes. And he invited the police arrogantly into his house for breakfast and the police noticed a terrible smell. And he basically told the police, oh, yeah, I've got there's a crawl space underneath my house and it's getting flooded with sewerage and stuff. I need to get it fixed. Now, the police didn't know his house had a crawl space. And when they'd previously searched his house in the search one, they hadn't included crawl space. So they went away, got a new search warrant, went back, searched the crawl space and found all the bodies. And they wouldn't have done that if it hadn't been for John Wayne Gacy's own arrogance. So going back to this case, Nielsen is now in custody. They get to Kids Grove Police Station where he gives his real name and his real address. The police go around to Grangefield Avenue in, in Thornaby where it, Nielsen was living and in the attic they basically discovered an operations room where he'd left detailed and meticulous plans of his of the kidnapping plot there was a Jepson number plate making kit which made number plates identical to the fake ones that had been on on the kidnapper's car they discovered other items that had been linked to, to the kidnapping and the burglaries and they also discovered hundreds and hundreds of newspaper cuttings related to the Black Panther series of crimes, dating back to even before Nielsen had been dubbed the Black Panther. So he'd been keeping a very close eye on what the press had been saying about his criminal career since the very beginning. So Nielsen almost immediately confessed to the crimes, or I say confessed, put as uh, as much of a self-serving confession as he could across to the police. He had a very peculiar way of speaking, Donald Nelson. Uh, it was almost what they call pidgin English, uh, where he would, he'd leave out certain words when he talked. So it sounded a bit like broken English. So he began his confession by saying, people believe all the lies about this Black Panther. The papers don't tell the truth about the Black Panther, so-called. They tell lies about him. I read them. He not like what they say. I want to tell you the truth. I not tell you like the newspapers. And then he went on to basically admit to have committed the the murders of the postmasters. But obviously he hadn't deliberately murdered them. They'd all died in accidents. And he admitted kidnapping Leslie. But again, he hadn't murdered her. She'd must have fallen off the gantry but by accident. Is it just me or does it seem very coincidental that the way he wrote the messages in Dynatape is very similar to the way he talks. 
I think it is. Yeah, I think I think effectively his thought process was very linear and he simply wrote them as he spoke. So effectively, again, he showed an arrogance when he was confessing and he ended the first confession that he made by saying the girl need not have died if the money was paid. So effectively, he put the blame for Leslie's death on the Whittles. But again, instead of actually saying, well, this is cause and effect, if you hadn't abducted her, then they wouldn't have had to get the money, which means that she would have survived. It amazes me how many people have this. It's surprising me that it's, uh, there's quite a few people who don't understand that nothing would have happened if it wasn't for their actions. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yes. And instead of understanding that, they blame the other people who had to react to what they did in the first place. Exactly. And you do see other killers using this exact same process. Dennis Nielsen, not to be confused with our Donald Nielsen, again, he a lot of the time put blame on his victims for wanting to try and leave him and, you know, puts as much blame upon them, try and kind of escape the blame himself. Yeah, and again, and again instead of realising that, well, you had actually drugged somebody to keep them there. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they're going to be frightened. And of course, they're going to want to leave. So, not long after making that confession, he was formally charged with the kidnapping of Leslie. He then appeared in Newcastle on the line magistrate's court where he had the audacity to plead not guilty. Because things don't happen linearly always in the criminal justice system, because it would be now be the Crown Prosecution uh, Service that didn't exist back then. Basically, the people who make the decision to prosecute, because they want to have the strongest case possible, you don't always get people being charged in sequence that they've committed the crimes. So initially, Nielsen was charged with Leslie's kidnapping because they felt they had the strongest evidence to connect him to that crime. And he appeared in Newcastle on the line magistrate's court where he quite arrogantly pled not guilty to that offence. But it wasn't long after that he was then charged with the other murders and he was committed to custody to await his trial. Whilst awaiting the trial, he was assessed by psychiatrists who effectively diagnosed him as being psychopathic and obsessional. Now, when the trial started, Gilbert Gray QC, who's defending Nilsson, tried to argue that Nilsson should only be put on trial for the crimes committed against Leslie Whittle. So that would be the murder of Leslie Whittle and a kidnapping. He argued that the post office robbery offences and the murder of the postmasters shouldn't be brought to trial at that point as they were part of separate criminal enterprises and they could only prejudice the jury against Nielsen when it came to their making a decision uh, about whether he was guilty of kidnapping and murdering Leslie. Now Gray did this for one simple and important reason. He knew that the strongest evidence against Nielsen proving his guilt didn't come from the kidnapping and murder of Leslie Whittle, but it came from the offences committed against the sub-postmasters and Gerald Smith. And that's because they had eyewitness testimony. Exactly, yes. So if Gray could get that evidence removed as inadmissible for the Leslie Whittle trial, the case against him for the Leslie Whittle kidnapping and murder would be so much weaker. And there was actually a good chance that if it happened, he might even get off with it. Now, everyone felt that this was a ludicrous situation and that, that, you know, the fences should all be tried together. But Mr. Justice Mars Jones actually ruled in Gray's favour. 
So all of the other offences, the crimes against the sub-postmasters, the, their murders, what would be effectively an attempted murder of Gerald Smith, they would all have to be dealt with at a separate trial. So effectively, we're now going to have two trials. One concerning the, all the details of the Leslie Whittle kidnapping and murder, and also he'd also be in charge with the blackmailing of, of Leslie's mother. And then you'd have a trial which would deal with the other Black Panther trip crimes. Now, Nielsen surprised everybody uh, when he pled guilty to kidnapping Leslie, guilty to attempting to blackmail the Whittle family, but crucially he pled not guilty to the murder of Leslie Whittle. Which, do you think that was more down to he was advised by his counsel? Yeah, he would definitely would have took advice from his counsel on that, and that's why he, he's pled that way, because I think they knew that there was no way that they could get him off the kidnapping charge, because there was eyewitness testimony that, that he'd been seen loitering around the area, that he'd been seen, you know, near the Redditch Library where those plans had been, his fingerprints had been found on, on our evidence found at the scene. So he was banged to rights when it came to kidnapping Leslie. Proving that he'd murdered Leslie was a different thing. So that's why he pled not guilty to that, because there was a, there was no direct evidence that he'd pushed Leslie off that gantry. So there was actually a chance that he might be found not guilty of that offence. So hence the reason why it was split up, which now does actually make sense. The highlight of the trial was when Donald Nilsson himself gave evidence and he used the his time in, in, in the witness box to basically grandstand. And, and in that strange pigeon English way that he spoke, he kind of took great joy in telling the the jury about his master plan uh, and his master plan to, to kidnap Leslie and extort the money from her family. He basically said that it took three years of planning and that he had planned it meticulously so that he thought nothing could go wrong. He said as part of his evidence, at no time did the girl see me. She could not possibly have recognised me by sight, description or by voice. There was positively no reason why the girl could not return to her family and give her family and the entire British police force every cooperation in trying to find me. I did not wish to be caught. The girl could have been left where she was or left at the top of the drainage system, whether or not the ransom had been paid, and I could have made my escape to safety. So basically, he asserted he had no reason to kill Leslie because she had not seen his face and couldn't identify him in any way. Now, his his basic story was that after the night of the failed ransom plan, he went back down into the drainage system and he found that Leslie was dead. In fact, Gilbert Gray directly asked him, did you kill Leslie Whittle? And he replied, no, sir. Did you ever intend or expect any harm would come to Leslie Whittle? No, sir. He took 20 minutes in the dock to kind of quite luridly explain Leslie's death and how he found her. And he said, I held my left hand down towards her with the intention of pulling her back up. She was hanging, as it were, partly underneath. Her head was lower than the gantry. There was nothing to grab hold of. The torch was pointing in her face. Her eyes flickered and stopped. Everything stopped. There was no movement. It was then I realised she was dead. There was absolutely nothing I could do. He was also asked how he'd coped with Leslie's death. 
And he said, Ken, quite arrogantly, there was just no need for me to remember it. The whole thing was closed from my mind from the night it happened. So, again, he's not doing himself any favours because he is looking like a cold-blooded psychopath to the jury. I suppose that fits with his inability to realise that he is to blame and not anybody else. Exactly. And Gilbert Gray did much to try and bolster that position. When he came to sum up the case, he tried to paint Nielsen as being some sort of romantic Robin Hood style folk hero. He started his summing up by saying the blackest thing about this man is the name, the Black Panther. He's a jobbing joiner from Bradford. He regards himself as being to crime what Sherlock Holmes was to detection. He was a little man with big ideas. That's the mark of Donald Nielsen. Not a super criminal who went out to kill, but a burglar who blundered for all his intelligence and obsession with detail. He said he's a lance corporal who believes himself to be a general. He's a man whose regard for his own imagined infallibility might be the envy of the Pope. You have heard of the Black Panther and Nielsen. You might think this was more like the Pink Panther and Sellers. <laughs> the fact that he makes all this out to be accidental does fit with the analogy of it being the Pink Panther. However, we know this is not the case. No. So, so he was a very meticulous planner, and but he was a very arrogant man, and he would sometimes not factor things in that he needed to. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that he was Pink Panther-like incompetence. And you've got to remember as well that there was a lot of bungling on the police's behalf as well, which which contributed to Nielsen getting away with it for so long. So he's found guilty. Yeah, it took the jury less than two hours. So as you, as you remember, he'd already pled guilty to the lesser charges of the kidnapping and the blackmail of the Whittle family. But he was found guilty of the murder of Leslie Whittle. And when Gilbert Gray went down to the cells to see Nilsson after he'd been found guilty, rather than finding the arrogant psychopath that, that everyone had come to know, he found Nilsson in a fetal ball, uncontrollably crying, far, far from that cold-blooded soldier that he you know, imagined himself to be. So he wasn't immediately sentenced for that offence. They decided to put off sentencing until the other matters had been dealt with. So there was a second trial, and that would deal with the murders of Donald Skepper, Derek Aston, and Sidney Graylands. Yeah, but what about Gerald Smith? Well, as I mentioned in the last episode, Gerald Smith died over a year after he was shot. And therefore, because of the law at the time, Nielsen could not be charged with murder. So even though Smith did die as a direct result of the injuries inflicted upon him by Dennis Nielsen, he couldn't be charged with 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 them murdering him in subsequent in subsequent years though we we do now say that that he did murder him that he did murder smith simply because it was a direct result of the injuries that nilson inflicted upon him uh, that led to gerald smith's death and under the modern laws he would undoubtedly be charged and and convicted of gerald smith's murder the second trial began with a rather interesting move by gilbert gray he put forward a motion that Dennis Nilsen, uh, he put forward a motion that the, the remaining murders not be proceeded with, that they were to be left to lie on file. And he basically argued that, look, he's already going to serve a life sentence for one murder. What's the point wasting all his thousands of pounds on another murder trial when we already know he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison? This time, the judge didn't go with, with that argument and basically ruled that it was in the public interests for the trial to go ahead. And again, like the first trial, 
Nielsen used the exact same defence he'd used on the, in the in Leslie Whistle trial. The fact that all the deaths had been accidental, he had never set out with the mindset to use that gun to kill anyone. He basically said that the gun had always accidentally discharged, that he hadn't ever deliberately pulled that trigger in anger. So again, Nielsen gave evidence in his own defence, but he was a changed man. He'd become an ill man. He'd developed a stomach ulcer and it left him in constant pain. He'd lost a lot of weight. He, he was now very thin and everyone was saying how ill he looked. When he was asked why he targeted post offices, he replied, it's government money. It's no loss to anybody. They could go and print some more. So again, it's that deflection. It's almost as if I wasn't intending to hurt anybody. They should have just given me that money. It's a strange self-entitlement, isn't it, that he has? Yes, it is a strange entitlement. Uh, and it, he, made, he made other strange pronouncements, like violence was not a thing that was planned, but it was necessary at times. But it was mm. never part of my plans. Even though he would take a gun with him? Yes, exactly. I get, why, why I struggle with this is the fact that he just doesn't seem to understand that if you take something with you that could potentially kill somebody, you are preparing to use it. Well, exactly. And, and the, the prosecutor basically said that the, the idea that these guns could accidentally discharge on five separate occasions was ludicrous. Now, when it came to summing up all the evidence against Nielsen, Mr. Justice Mars Jones, who was also presented at the second trial, basically said something which was incredibly damning. He'd gone through all of Nielsen's witness statements as any trial judge would and he'd found an admission which Nielsen basically regretted ever making and he basically told the jury that Nielsen had said eight words which were most telling and a significant feature of all the evidence now they were the judge's words and those eight words that Nielsen said is when the Black Panther shoots he shoots to kill now, effectively, the judge was saying uh, to the jury, his defence is a pack of bullshit. You know, it's a pack of lies. He went out there and he has meant to kill these people when he's fired the gun. Now, this time when the jury retired to consider the verdict, it took them a bit longer to come to a decision. It took them five hours. But nevertheless, they came back and they had found Nilsson guilty of all offences. This obviously led to Donald Nilsson being sentenced to a whole life tariff imprisonment. He did actually try and fight that in court. Basically said that he shouldn't be held in prison for the whole of his natural life. He lost that fight. And he did actually die in prison. He ultimately, de he developed motor neurons disease, which is an illness that can develop very quickly. And within two years of his being diagnosed of that, he, he passed away. So what was the impact that was left with the victims after his death? Well, by this point, a lot of the people who had been directly affected by Nielsen had already passed them away themselves. The, those, the, the children of, of his victims, a lot of them basically stayed stoically quiet on the matter. I think a lot of them just wanted Nielsen to be, to be quietly forgotten the way he, he was starting to be. Uh, as I said in the very first episode, in, 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 certainly in my childhood, the Black Panther was, was a figure that loomed large in the pantheon of serial killers. But then you had other serial killers coming along who, whose crimes were far you know far many, more many victims far gruesomer and he was quietly quietly forgotten by um, and effectively by the time of his death in 2011 he was a largely forgotten killer would you say this is because of the time scale that 
we then move into the realms of Dennis Nielsen and Peter Sutcliffe. That's why he's forgotten. Well, exactly. Yeah, you've you've got you've got those types of killers who, who whose crimes were were far bloodier, far more many victims, and and he was just eclipsed by the wave of, of serial killers who came after him. That concludes our investigation into Donald Nielsen, also known as the Black Panther. It certainly does. However, I will, I will say to listeners, this has been a very whistle-stop tour of the case. I know it's been four episodes, but the investigation into Donald Nielsen was an incredibly detailed one. There was a heck of a lot that we didn't have time to cover in this podcast. And I would seriously urge the listeners that if they do want to know more, please do read about the subject you know obviously you can buy my book or there are other good books about about donald milson and his crimes out there so please do pick up a book and 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 read more about this fascinating case yeah and again we need to thank joe griffiths for recommending this case to us um i know it's one that you were quite keen to do anyway but it certainly prompted us to do it sooner rather than later uh if you have any recommendations or any cases you want us to look into and tell the story of please get in contact by going to our Twitter page, which is at Murder Tales Pod. You can also go there if you have any questions, concerns, or any feedback at all. Alternatively, you can get in contact with Lloydie directly, which is... At HN Lloyd one Right. This is one of those cases I really didn't know anything about, but it's been absolutely fascinating. So I'm looking forward to see what we're going to do next. Yeah, it's a little forgotten gem of a case, this, and that's why I wanted to do it. It, it really is a classic of the genre, if you could say such a thing. Very true. Right. So our next episode is our uh, timely Christmas episode. So have you got any thoughts what we're going to do next time? Ho, 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 ho. Yeah, I, I know exactly what we're going to do next episode. It's going to be an absolute festive cracker of a case. One that I'm sure the listeners and you will um, will um, enjoy listening about. Okay, sounds intriguing. If it goes off the back of last year's one, it could be an, an interesting episode. So yeah, we're, so for New Year, we're going to finish off this half of the series. We are going to be investigating a case in Liverpool, that of William Herbert Wallace as most people know it as, The Man from the Pro. Yes, it's one of my favourite cases. It's a mystery which uh, haunts anyone who gets involved in it. There's so many twists and turns. It's it's like an Agatha Christie made real. Which, considering I've just seen The Mousetrap, sounds quite interesting. Right, Lloyd, thank you very much. We'll see you again in two weeks. Don't want to miss the next episode. Make sure that you go to wherever you are listening to this podcast right now. iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, wherever, and hit like and subscribe. And while you're there, please leave us a lovely five-star review. So that just leaves me to say, I've been Chris Britton, and he's been HN Lloyd. Even in all... If you enjoyed the show, please go onto iTunes and leave us a lovely five-star review. And even better, click on that subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. Or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Mother Tales podcast is based around the criminal history books by H.N. Lloyd. If you'd like to get your hands onto them, you can click on the Amazon link on our Twitter page. This show was presented, edited, and produced by Chris Burton. It was created, written, and co-presented by the author H.N. Lloyd. Our theme was New World Order by Neil Roberts Music. The Mother Tales podcast is part of the P-Pod Casting Network. You can check out our other shows, such as the Pub Politics podcast, or even the Tragical History Tour. All you have to do is go and search on your favourite podcast provider.